What is it about the Darien Gap that draws people to it, or at least the idea of it? Is it the bot flies, the venomous snakes, the bandits, or the extremely rough terrain? I mean, there's options for getting around it. You can go by boat or by plane, and then you won't risk your motorcycle or your life by choosing the alternate route, at least not to the extent you would trying to go through it. Yet there's still those that are fascinated by it, who want to conquer it. Wayne Mitchell and a group of ex-military friends planned a trip from Alaska to Argentina, but they didn't want to go around the gap. They wanted to go through it. Yet after just one day of pushing their limits in the jungle, one of their team was forced to turn back. And that was just the beginning. What was supposed to have been the dry season in the Darien turned out to be a monumental challenge with torrential rains, deep mud, and broken down motorcycles. And even a few years after the fact, Wayne still feels strongly about the Darien Gap experience. It was a tremendously fun trip. I, I, I mean, I enjoyed it a lot, with the exception of the Darien Gap. I will never go back into the jungle again. That place was miserable. Best Rest Product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Google Tech filters, cyclepump.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And, of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear. GreenChiliADV.com. Okay, uh, my name is Wayne Mitchell and I am a Park Service employee at Rocky Mountain National Park. I live in Estes Park, Colorado, but I'm originally from Alaska. Wayne, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you for having me. Alaska, why'd you leave Alaska? Uh, that's a good question. <laughs> I think um, I grew up there. I spent most of my life up there. I Traveled a lot with the army. I joined the army when I was 17. So um, I was in Alaska off and on for the military. And then, uh, you know, I started started a family up there. And sometime around 2009, yeah, 2008, 2009, we just decided uh, we wanted to try living in Oregon and Washington for a while. So I transferred into the uh, Oregon Army National Guard. and. Um, have just been kind of uh, trying to find the perfect place to live ever since. And I think we kind of found it here in Colorado. Oh, what, what is the perfect place to live? I'm sure a lot of people would want to know this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, for, for us, you know, my wife is um, she's from Columbia, South America and Alaska was, I think a little too dark and um, you know, too, too long of winters and a little too dark and a little too cold. So we moved down to Oregon and uh, it was a little bit sunnier down there, but we still got quite a bit of rain. 
And uh, we did three years down in uh, Dry Tortugas down in Florida. So we lived in Key West and I worked out in Dry Tortugas National Park for a couple of years. And that was a little bit too much sunshine and a little bit too much summer year round. So uh, we thought we'd move back to the to the mountains. And um, Colorado's a it's a nice place. There's a lot of outdoors. There's a lot of mountains, a lot of hiking trails, mountain biking. Uh, you still get kind of all of the different seasons. You get a nice, you know, beautiful fall and you get a nice uh, mild winter, um, but you still get snow. And, and then the summer times are just fabulous. You know, it's it's warm and sunny and, and kind of recharge your batteries. That's quite a quest, really, what you've just described there for <laughs> yeah. home. Do you sort of look back at Alaska in, you know, um, in a lamenting way? Well, we, you know, we still have family there, so we still go back to visit. Um, I guess I grew up in a, um, in a guiding family. My grandfather was a, a hunting and fishing guide. So I grew up with uh, a lot of horses uh, we used in the summertime. And then the wintertime, uh, we ran dog teams to resupply the cabins uh, for the summertime. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think I miss sort of that lifestyle of, sort of that remote, uh, self-sufficient lifestyle that Alaska is known for. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, you know, I have fond memories of Alaska and my kids were both born there. And like I said, we go back there every once in a while, but, um, yeah, it's, I mean, it's a great place to, to grow up for sure. When I think of Alaska and Key West, it just like, (laughs) wow, like opposite ends. (laughs) Yeah, it's about as extreme as you can get. Yeah, isn't it though? <laughs> yeah. I actually in um uh I got back into riding motorcycles. Uh I had ridden them a lot as a kid and then I sort of had this period where I was raising small children of my own and I didn't do a lot of riding. And then um when I was living in Key West, uh, my high school friend he said, "Hey, why don't we ride motorcycles from Key West to Dead Horse Alaska and then we'll go to our high school reunion?" So, um, that was like my first foray into adventure motorcycle riding was, I was on a BMW 650. I rode from Key West, Florida to dead horse and then back down to, uh, we did it in like eight days. And then we rode down to Palmer, Alaska for our high school reunion. It was a pretty, pretty interesting reintroduction, actually an introduction into adventure riding. You mentioned military there, retiring from the military. You're retiring fairly young, I guess, at that point. Um, yeah, so I, I answered when I was 17, 17, and I did um, I did about 21 and a half years between active duty and the National Guard. Um, so it's not a, you know, it's not like a full-on military retirement. But yeah, I was, I was um, you know, I'm still, I consider myself still fairly young. What did you do in the military? Well, I started out my career, uh, in the infantry, I was enlisted and then, um, I was in an airborne unit. Um, the national guard up in Alaska had a long range surveillance unit that, uh, trained out of Anchorage, Alaska. I was in that unit for a while. And then I was taking college classes, uh, you know, kind of in the evenings and my executive officer at the time everybody joked around, called me college boy. And my executive officer asked me, he said, well, you know, what are you studying in college? And I'm like, well, I'm just sort of taking classes. And he said, well, boy, do I have a deal for you? And he, (laughs) and I got a uh, ROTC scholarship and, 
uh, finished up my last two years on ROTC scholarship study in anthropology. So after I got commissioned as an officer, I got commissioned as an engineer officer. So even though I didn't have a degree in engineering, I, I uh, worked as a pretty much doing project management and things like that. Um, and then when I got deployed to Iraq in 2004, I actually got deployed as a infantry platoon leader. So I spent my time doing, doing infantry stuff in Iraq in 2004 and 2005 and, um, or 2005-2006. So, and then I went back in, when I got out of Iraq, I went back into sort of the engineer side of the house. In 2005-2006 in Iraq, what's that like? What does the job entail? Well, for, for me at the time, I was a platoon leader and, um, you know, it's 120 people. Uh, we were in the Alaska National Guard, which had not deployed anyone into combat since World War II, pretty much before they existed. Um, they were sort of a territorial guard at the time of World War, when World War II broke out. Um, but yeah, so we were the first National Guard deployment out of Alaska since World War II. We were um, attached to an infantry brigade from Hawaii. So we were actually working for the Hawaii national guard and, uh, we showed up into Iraq and it was pretty disorganized. It was, um, you know, the military had kind of stuck to, they had completed the invasion of Iraq and now it was sort of transitioning into the peacekeeping mode. Um, and that was about the time when the terrorist cells in Iraq were starting to sort of increase their, their attacks. And it was pretty random. We were, um, assigned to camp victory, which is right outside of, uh, Baghdad international airport. And, uh, you know, our company had some, um, uh, some base security requirements. And we also had, uh, a mission to patrol the area leading up to the international airport. There were kind of the neighborhoods on either side of the the entrance to the airport. Um, and our primary job was kind of patrolling those neighborhoods and, um, sort of keeping, keeping watch for rocket attacks and mortar attacks and, uh, sniper attacks, things like that. It was a lot of, a lot of boredom, a lot of monotony. Looking back, what did the, uh, the military mean for you? Well, I mean, I think it was a lifestyle. Um, it was it. And I think about this sometimes because I, I went from the military into the National Park Service, which is, a you know, they're both organizations, oddly enough, where you wear uniforms. And um, <laughs> but, but, you know, both organizations, they have a, a, def, a defined mission set. You know, this is what our mission is. And everybody that joins the military or everybody that that uh, enters the park service, they kind of know that mission and that's why they're there. You know, you had some great experiences. The military sent me to some really cool countries. Um, I probably never would have gone to Mongolia on my own if uh, the military hadn't sent me there to train. And, um, you know, turned out to be one of the best experiences of my life. One of the coolest places that I've ever visited. Uh, really loved it there. And, so, you know, that's one of the best things that's ever happened to me. And then one of the worst things was obviously going to Iraq. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, it's the, the military is just kind of becomes a way of life. And, um, you know, a lot of people think that outside of the military think that, you know, the is very regimented and that, you know, they want mindless, you know, drones that do exactly what they're told. But the reality of it is there's very interesting people join the military, very interesting, thoughtful people, intelligent people, problem solvers. Um, and that's kind of what the military is looking for. So being around that kind of a group of people, you know, it's, it's an interesting way to spend your, the early part of your life. Why retire then? Why, why not keep at it? Well, I, I think that's, that's a good question. <laughs> well, for one, your body, you know, after 20 years of, of, uh, that kind of abuse, you know, I mean, we, I, I spent a lot of times, you know, very little sleep, uh, lots of physical exertion, lots of mental exertion. Um, and, and it takes a, a toll on your family as well. After I, so I deployed to Iraq, the total time I was gone between the train up prior and actually being in theater was 18 months. And then I got back from Iraq and I was home for about 20 days. My daughter was born. Uh, my wife got pregnant right before my deployment. So she was like born kind of right in the middle of my deployment. And so my daughter was born, you know, and, and, <laughs> my wife had a newborn while I'm, while I'm away in a combat zone. And that's, you know, that was obviously very stressful, but, uh, I had, I was home for probably about 30 days and I got a phone call saying, Hey, we want you to go over to Mongolia for 30 days and train the Mongolians. And it's like, well, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I hadn't been home a month and they wanted me to be gone for another month. And, and then over the course of the next two years, I just uh, was sent to a lot of places to do a lot of training. And um, and it just, you know, it's, those are the kinds of things that take its toll on your family. And at some point in time, you got to go, OK, I'm going to um, we're going to get out of the military and I'm going to go find a, a quiet spot to sort of spend some time rebuilding. And, and that's, you know, that's kind of what we did. Some place where you can come home every night and have dinner sort of thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So getting the job at the national park now, is, is that something you sort of fell into? You go out, you come back, you're looking for some kind of work that sort of tickles your fancy or were you going after that? Yeah, no, I mean, I knew, I knew that my, you know, if I was getting out of the military, I needed to sort of transition into some other, uh, some other line of work. And so what I did was I went to the, um, law enforcement Academy and national park service law enforcement Academy. And I got my, uh, EMT certificate at the same time. And then, uh, I applied for a seasonal law enforcement ranger position, uh, actually in Katmai national park. So back in Alaska. And I went out there, I got, I got the position pretty much based on sort of my experience growing up, you know, operating jet boats and, you know, having a lot of outdoor experience in, in Alaska. Um, so I went back there as a seasonal ranger, and I don't know if you're familiar with Katmai National Park, but it's it's a pretty remote location. The rangers live in cabins. There's a lodge. If you've ever seen those photographs of of fish jumping up a waterfall and being caught by the bears uh, in midair, that's Katmai National Park. Mm -hmm. um, so I spent I spent a summer out there, and then I was like, you know, I think this Park Service 
thing is going to work for me. I kind of like it. Um, I'm a, a permanent position opened up in Dry Tortugas National Park, and I was an EMT, so that's another remote uh, location. Uh, so I applied for that position, and then we moved out there. Oh, I guess 2013, somewhere around there, and uh, yeah, we just moved, picked up, picked up the whole family, and road tripped down to Key West, Florida, and uh, that was a culture shock going. Going from the Pacific Northwest to suddenly living in Florida is a culture shock enough, but you go all the way down to Key West and, uh, yeah, it was, um, it's everything, isn't it? It's culture, it's terrain, it's weather. It's absolutely. Yeah. It's everything. Yeah. That's a good way of putting it. you know, it's like, uh, it's all palm trees and flip flops and coconut rum. And yeah, it was quite a difference. I actually went on my six days off. I would take my motorcycle and ride from Key West up to Tennessee and Virginia and those areas and ride around for a couple of days and then turn around and ride back. These, these early forays with your bike, then does that sort of introduce you to adventure motorcycling? I mean, how in tune were you at that point into adventure motorcycling? Well, I wasn't at all. I didn't even know it was a thing, to be honest. Um, so I had ridden dirt bikes when I was a kid. I had a trail 90 up in Alaska that I put, I don't even know how many miles on around my neighborhood. And, and I lived on the edge of a, a big hayfield area. Um, I grew up in Palmer, Alaska, which, you know, has a lot of hayfields. And so, um, those back roads on that trail 90, I, I put a lot of miles on that trail 90. Um, and then it was mostly road bikes. Uh, I mean, I think I had a Honda rebel and, and a shadow and, a and a Harley at one time and, but it was all road bike, uh, stuff. And then it wasn't until, yeah, I got down to Florida and I, I around probably 2014, I bought a GS 650, you know, I was planning on riding into Alaska. So I wanted something with a little bit higher suspension and or a little bit better suspension. And, uh, and it, that was when I learned about, you know, like, Hey, you can put your camping gear on a motorcycle and go camping. That's a great idea. And, uh, but I didn't realize that there was this whole adventure rider like culture and I started doing it. And my, one of my buddies said, Hey, have you watched long way around? You know, I was a fan of Ewan McGregor from train spotting and, uh, <laughs> it's like, and Black Hawk down. I, I actually didn't know he was Scottish because the first time I ever saw him on camera was Black Hawk down. I thought he was an American actor. But, uh, yeah, so I watched that and I was like, and then I started get tuning into the fact that there's like this whole adventure rider culture. And, um, yeah, and then I just started, you know, that 650 had, uh, I put a rear rack on it and started slinging my luggage over the back of it and, uh, doing some overnight trips up to Tennessee and, and Virginia and just trying to find anything that wasn't flat because all of Florida is flat. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, but, um, and then riding up to Alaska and back, that was an eye opener for me just of how, uh, how much more relaxing it is on a motorcycle, how much more enjoyable it is. Um, you know, you talk to more people, like you stop at a gas station in a car and you're filling up, like nobody really asks you where you're coming from or where you're going, yeah. you know, but you do that on a motorcycle. And you know, if you're at a gas station for more than 10 minutes, somebody's going to be like, Oh, where'd you come from? You know? Yeah just a, it's kind of a conversation starter. So you decided at one point somewhere 
you got the impetus to do a massive trip. How does that start? Oh, well, I, th- I think, um, it sort of evolved from like, we we're like Mike Eastham and I, uh, we had known each other when I was enlisted. And then just because the Alaska national guard is sort of a small organization, when we got deployed to Iraq, he ended up being my squad leader. So when, when I first met him, he, I worked, I was uh, a lower rank than him. And then I got commissioned as an officer. He was actually assigned under me as a, a squad leader. So we we're sitting in Iraq and I guess this would have been 2005, you know, just having conversations about stuff that we were going to do once we retired, which is a very common conversation probably in any organization where you're like, oh man, when I retire, I'm going to go buy a sailboat or, or whatever. Um, and I knew about the Darien Gap back in probably 1998, I had met Tim Steigen, who was the youngest member of the Jeep AMC expedition from 1978. So in 1978, Tim, along with, uh, I can't remember the expedition leader's name. I think his last name was Smith, but I can't remember his first name. Uh, it might've been JD Smith, maybe. I don't, well, I don't remember his first name, but, uh, so they put together a group of Jeeps and they went from Argentina to Alaska and they went through the Darien gap by land. And so that sort of conversation with him, you know, he told me all about the trip and how long it took him to get through the jungle, how they got the Jeeps through, uh, and, and at the time I like, I didn't even know you couldn't drive through the Darien. Like I didn't know there wasn't a road there. Mm-hmm. So that had always stuck in my brain. And these are um, all CJ fives, I think is what it was. And they did a movie, but yeah. didn't they? Yeah. It's called, uh, Expedition de las Americas or de los Americas. I believe it's on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Yeah, pretty good footage. I want to say it's about a 30 minute, 20 or 30 minute, uh, video. Um, yeah. So. So, you know, a conversation with Mike and we were like, oh, we should take motorcycles from, you know, Alaska down to Argentina. And and then, of course, the Daring Gap comes up and, you know, it's it's one of those things that on paper doesn't really make any sense. You know, you got to want to do it right. It, yeah, like for, for whatever reason, a lot of people ask me, like, why would you go through the Daring Gap uh, and not go around it? And I, I really don't have a solid answer for it other than that we just sort of wanted to do it. We wanted the challenge. You know, we joked about it for quite a while, but then in 2015, Mike retired. Uh, you know, we were both retired from the military and we had started other careers, but, you know, we had time, we had some money saved up and we we're like, hey, why don't we do this? And we started really talking about it quite a bit. What is this exactly when you're saying, let's do this? What is, what is this? Describe the trip overall. Well, the idea that we came up with was, uh, we wanted to leave Alaska. So we wanted to do it in one complete trip. We didn't want to break it up into multiple years. We wanted to ride from Alaska, from Dead Horse, Alaska to Ushuaia, Argentina in one continuous trip. Uh, and we wanted to go by land through the Darien Gap, mostly by land. Uh, you know, the Darien Gap is, the, if for those that don't know about it, the Darien Gap is a hundred mile stretch of jungle between Panama and Colombia. There's no roads, there's no bridges, there's no towns to speak of. There's, there's a network of uh, small rivers that sort of weave through that jungle. And there's some villages along those, those rivers. 
And then between uh, Paya, Columbia, or Paya, Panama, which is sort of the most remote village in Panama, and between Cristales, Colombia, which is the most remote village in on the Colombian side, between those two, there's a low mountain range that sort of separates the two continents. And that's uh, sort of along that low mountain range is the border between Panama and Colombia. There's a network of about 20 trails, or I'm sorry, there's a network of about 20 miles of trails that sort of spider web between the two. And there's one main trail that goes between those villages, but um, there's a lot of side trails and, and, you know, it's the jungle. So there's animal trails and there's people trails. And then that particular region, starting in the 80s, when the drug war with the United States sort of kicked off, that area became very hotly contested among uh, human and drug trafficking organizations. So there's there's a lot of politics to it, and, and I don't claim to be an expert on on the area, but uh, there's there's essentially two tribes. There's the Panamanian tribes of of Kuna Indians, and then there's a Colombian tribe of uh, Wunan Indians in um, the Los Catios National Park area, and then south in Panama, there's the Kuna Indian who are in the Darien National Park sort of regulated area. Um, and then there's the, you know, there's the anti-government organizations like the FARC and the ELN that use the jungle and the Panamanians or on the Colombian side. And then in the South, there's, you know, drug trafficking and human trafficking. And another organization that operates in the area is called Sena Front. They're the military, they're the paramilitary uh, border patrol for the Panamanians. And they kind of patrol the Panama side. Um there's not really an equivalent of that on the Colombian side. It's a little more lawless on the Colombian side. So, you know, these are the these are the the things that we're starting to put together when we start to plan this trip uh, around 2015 and 2016. We start planning this trip from north to south, and you know, we just kind of felt like if we if we got to Panama and we put our bikes on a boat. And we went out on the ocean and we started going around the Darien Gap. We would always sort of be looking into the jungle, wondering, you know, what are we missing, right? Yeah, so we started We started talking to people. We started putting together sort of a team. Mike has a lot of mechanical skills, so he was sort of taking the part of the welder and the mechanic. And then he recruited Rich Doring, uh, who was had served with us in the military. Uh, he started helping me with some of the logistics. And then my next door neighbor, Simon Edwards, had been a, a special forces medic, and he's currently works as a physician's assistant. And um, he has a tremendous amount of experience in motorcycles. He's a two-time AMA land speed record holder out at Bonneville. He races in Baja. He's um, you know he's got this tremendous amount of motorcycle experience, and he just happened to be my next door neighbor. So, so he got recruited early on, and then. At some point in time, we, I, I just sort of had this, I was still down in Florida and I had this sort of chance encounter with, uh, with this guy named Jake Hamby, this young kid who was a, a combat camera operator in the army. And he had just gotten back from deployment and, uh, we started talking and he said, well, you know, I'm a, I ride KLRs. I'm a motorcycle rider. I've always wanted to make a motorcycle movie. And I thought, well, welcome to the team, <laughs> you know? So it suddenly went from 
just doing this motorcycle trip with these four knuckleheads to Jake wants to come along and film the whole thing. And, uh, and fortunately he did. But, but what was yeah. the point though, when you, when you were, you're getting ready first, first it's you and your buddy, you know, Mike Easton, you, he, you know, you, you were in the military together. It's a buddy's dream to do this ride. Then it turns into a team. Doesn't that change the whole dynamic and the whole idea of the trip? Y- yeah, for sure. Um, I, what was the point? <laughs> that's, that's a really good question. Um, I mean, I think originally we just sort of wanted to do a, I don't know if you would call it sort of a celebration of having, you know, completed a, a career, you know, you spend 20 years in the military, you don't get to do things on the time schedule that you want to do them on. And you don't necessarily get to go to the places that you want to go. Um, and I think, you know, th- this was like, Hey, let's plan a, a cool trip. I, I, I don't want to say it was a trip of a lifetime or that it was a, a last hurrah. Cause that's kind of depressing if you think about it too deep, but, um, yeah, I mean, hopefully it's not the trip of a lifetime. I'd like to do a couple more trips before I die, but, um, yeah, I think we just wanted to plan something and execute something on our own. And then we sort of mentally committed to the Darien Gap. We were like, well, we can't go around it. Like we just, we got to go through it. Right. Like we have all these skills and we've done all this stuff. Like, let's just, let's like try to go through it. Well, then you start really putting some thought into it. And there's only been a couple of people that have taken motorcycles through the Darien. Um, you know, there's just a handful of them. There's uh, Ed Culberson, Antonio Braga. He was a South American who took his bike through the other direction. Uh, Helge Peterson and then Lauren Upton and uh, Patty Upton. They've done a whole bunch of crazy stuff in the Darien. But um, we just started looking at all of the logistics and all of the challenges. And then when you pile on top of that, that somebody wants to carry a camera through and try and film the whole thing, I sort of took on a producer uh, I put a sort of put up, put on a producer hat to help, you know, get the film made. And, um, so I, I was kind of piling that onto the already challenging trip and, and we only had five months to do the whole trip because we had all sort of taken other jobs and had other life. And, and I didn't want to be gone from my family for an entire year. So we sort of set aside five months. And when you start doing that, you're like, well, okay, we have to get through the Darien gap and, January when it's dry. So we got a backward plan. How long is it going to take us? Well, okay. So now we got to get through Alaska and Canada in November and December, right? So now we've got to figure out a way to ride through Alaska and Canada when it's 25 below and blizzard. So, and, and now we have to, you know, we, the, the, the guy that's trying to film the whole thing can't be on a motorcycle because he's got to be charging batteries while he's, you know, just, all of these things started to make the trip um, more, a little more cumbersome. Well, yeah, it seems like it started out as two buddies planning this, this awesome adventure between the two years. And now it's turning into a massive production. It, it sounds like it's completely detached from the original idea. Well, it wasn't, um, so it wasn't a massive production, I would say. I, I mean, it wasn't as massive as it might seem, you know, we had one, so we had one guy, um, Jake Hamby, and if you ever talk to Jake, you know, if, if you talked to, well, if you talked to 28 year old Jake, 
you know, he's maybe lost a little enthusiasm, but if you talk to 22 year old Jake about making a motorcycle film, uh, he was very enthusiastic about it. And he was like, Oh, this is going to be great. You know, like, Oh, oh we could do this. We do that. This is 22 when, when you, when it happened and 28 is now you're saying. Yeah. He's, he yeah. was 22 at the time. And, uh, he was like, I, the first time I talked to him on the phone, he's like, he was in living in Georgia. And, um, he said, Hey, I, I'm going to come down. Uh, I'll ride my motorcycle down and we'll, and we'll talk. And, and like eight hours later, he's like knocking on my door down in Florida and he's like ready to pitch his tent out beside my house and like wants to talk about making this movie. So yeah, we, I think if I, <laughs> if I was going to do this trip again, I would, uh, I'd jump on my motorcycle with my wife on the back. I wouldn't have any set dates. I wouldn't have any, um, and I would not go to Alaska and start in Alaska. I just ship the bike to South America and go ride. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah, at the time we were like, you know, and, and then, you know, when you start committing to things and you start building this plan in your mind, you're like, well, okay, now I got to get it done. Like we've been talking about going through the Darren gap. Like, well, now we're committed. We're like, we're doing it when, no matter what the logistical challenge is, it's like getting to the moon, right? You're like, you know, uh, Kennedy said, we're going to land a person on the moon and you just start backward planning and trying to figure out how are we going to get to that end point? Mm -hmm. Um, and we never really thought about like, well, you know, is it going to take the fun out of it? It was a tremendously fun trip. I, I, I mean, I enjoyed it a lot with the exception of the Darien gap. Like I will never go back into the jungle again. Like that place was, um, was miserable, but, uh, for, for various reasons, but I would certainly never take a motorcycle in there. Uh, but, but once you start looking at the Darien gap and you realize, well, well I don't want to just show up unprepared and just try to muddle our way through it. Um, there's a lot of misinformation about the Darien gap. A lot of people go down there and they, you know, they just sort of show up at the last minute and they've read Ed Culberson's book or they've seen Helge Peterson's story. You know, a lot of those, trips were done prior to the war on drugs. So the climate has changed a little bit. Um, it's now, you know, the Darien national park is now a national park and they have restrictions. So when you go down there, uh, first thing we did is we went, we actually went on a reconnaissance trip sort of the year prior. We went down in January and we met with the Kuna Indians and the village elders up in Paya uh, they put some stipulations on like, yes, we're going to let you go through, but this is, you know, you have to hire a local guide. We want you to pay our, our locals to help you out and, you know, okay, we can do that. And then we had to go meet with the Darien National Park uh, Administration and pay a fee. We had to pay like a camping fee to camp in the national park. Um, and then you had to meet with Centerfront because they're the border patrol yeah, it was a, it, it, it was a, it was a bit of a challenge. And then we had to get permission to film on top of, you know, on top of all of the regular, you know, going on a motorcycle ride, you've got to arrange all of the film permits and everything. So well, when you're planning this, so the, obviously the Darien gap was your, your biggest concern or quickly became the biggest concern. You're realizing that that's going to be the real challenge is the Darien gap, but you've got to go from the extremes. You got to, you mentioned you're going to have to start in the winter time in Alaska. 
You're going to have to go down and then deal with the Darien Gap. And then you've got all the riding in between. Sure, you know, Canada and, and U.S. is pretty straightforward, but then you're going to have to go through, through South America. There's a lot of border crossings, a lot of things you'll have to deal with there to get to Ushuaia. And you've got a time crunch on this. So was there, was there any point where you, where you guys sat down and looked at this and said, okay, that there's, you know, this may be too tight. Well, so yeah, like you mentioned, the two big concerns that we had, uh, was Alaska and, and the Darien Gap. Those, um, Alaska turned out to be a little bit bigger of a challenge because we didn't really have any support system up there. Um, you know, we had the truck, uh, or we had the van and we had a trailer. Um, our support network was that trailer. Um, <laughs> you know, so, you know, but we knew that once we got through Alaska and we had, uh, had built custom sidecars for the, for the motorcycles in Alaska and Canada, just because of the road conditions and we knew it would be slippery and difficult to, um, difficult to ride a motorcycle on. So, we dropped the sidecars in Oregon and we sort of knew, you know, we had all ridden in the last, or we had all ridden in, in the United States. Uh, we sort of blew through, uh, Oregon, Washington or Washington, Oregon and California pretty quick. Um, I think we spent a grand total of like three days going through there. And then we got into Mexico and I think looking back on it, um, I, well, first thing I would say is it's not impossible to do in five months, but it's not as enjoyable. You're going to miss, you could spend five months in every country along the way and still not see everything. But we did, I think we felt like we all had it in the back of our minds that the Darien gap was the big question mark, not just because, you know, we knew it would be physically demanding, but also emotionally kind of draining because it is a it's an area that's trafficked or there's a lot of human trafficking, a lot of drug trafficking. And so it's a kind of a contested area. And at that time, the FARC had just signed a peace agreement with the Colombian military. So it was fortunate for us because they were sort of in the middle of, I don't know if they were disarming, but they were, a lot of them were sort of in, they, they saw this sort of peace deal with the Colombian government looming. A lot of them were leaving the jungle and, and so there was a little bit of, of turmoil, uh, which was good for us because it ended up being pretty calm there. But yeah, we through Central America was actually the most challenging because um, if you've ever ridden through there, the border crossings, um, they get cons they get easier as you go south. But uh, we had one border crossing it took us 12 hours to cross because they wanted to look through everything we had. They wanted to see you know, because, you know, obviously we have four motorcycles and we have this big unsightly giant black van that's full of camera equipment and we've got tires strapped to the top and we've got, we had a surfboard strapped to the top of it. We had, um, at one point in time, we had a hammock rack bolted, it's bolted to the top of this thing so that, uh, they could string a hammock up just to chill out on. So so it was, we made quite a sight, but so we would go into a border crossing and we would get all of the typical, like, oh, you got to pay this extra fee and you got to do this. And so we would spend four hours just trying to call somebody's bluff, you know, somebody's trying to bribe us in to getting through. And we'd have to sit for four hours until they got, you know, they did a, a shift change and now it was a new person. And, 
and, you know, just kind of the whole gamut of, of Central America travel. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was before we even got to Panama. So we get to Panama and now we've got to figure out, okay, what's going into the Darien Gap with us? How do we make the bikes as light as we can? What do we actually need in there? What are we going to carry on our backs? Um, buy some supplies. We we And then from Panama City to the place called Yavisa. Yavisa is where the road technically runs out paved and now it's paved all the way up to Yavisa. So when the first year we went there, it was a dirt road, but they had paved it over the winter. So we get to Yavisa and Yavisa is, um, it's sort of a hub for all of the stuff going in and out of the Darien. They grow a lot of, um, plantains and bananas. And I think they might grow yucca. I'm not sure, but, um, so that stuff all comes out of the Darien and then all of the modern amenities go into the Darien from Yavisa. So things get trucked to Yavisa and then they get put on dugout boats and they go into a spider web of, of rivers that go up into the Darien and there's all these little villages and things. Well, the farthest village away from that network, the deepest village into the jungle is Paya. And Paya is very small. There's maybe a couple hundred people living there. Um, and then from Paya, there's a whole bunch of trails that go off into banana and plantain groves that are just planted in the jungle. So the trails kind of go all over the place. Um, but there's one trail that goes towards the Colombian border and then it drops down into Colombia. So when you get to Paya, well, let me back up. So the first thing we do is we drive to, we've, we've, downloaded everything we can off of the bikes and we're just down to bare minimum. We get down to Yavisa and there is a Senna front headquarters in Yavisa. And we go in there and the, the company commander that's there. Uh, so we're at the end of the road, we get to Yavisa and we have to go meet with Senna front and our guide, Isaac is there. He's a, he typically takes bird watching expeditions into the Darien. Um, but, but, Isaac Pizarro, who's our guide, he had actually been on the uh, expedition back in the 80s with Antonio Braga. He was a kid at the time, but but he was there and participated in that. So really cool guy. If you ever want to go to uh, into the Darien National Park, you got to look him up on Facebook. He's uh, Isaac T. Pizarro is his name. But um, so so we go into the headquarters building there in Yavisa and. Uh, the commander just doesn't want us to go. He's like, this is, you know, you guys are stupid for doing this. We, I showed him a picture, a picture that I took with the center front commander back in Panama city. And I said, yeah, you know, he, he said we could go and I show him the photograph, you know, of a shaking hands. And he kind of looks at me funny and he goes, okay, well go ahead. So we load all of the motorcycles up the next morning. We spent the night in Uvisa kind of sorted out, uh, all of our food and, and you have to keep in mind that, that we have to pay the guides and, uh, and the boat captains and, um, we have to pay the villagers in Paya. We, we, one of the stipulations was that we, um, we actually hired, uh, I guess you'd call them porters, but the villagers from Paya, they wanted, you know, some money to let us go through. So we said, okay, well, we'll hire, I think we hired um, 
10 of them originally. And then we hired another five to help out. Uh, actually, I think after, after the bikes broke down, we might've hired another 10, but so we're carrying cash into the jungle. So we sorted all that out the night before. And then the next morning, uh, we loaded all the, all of the motorcycles onto these dugout canoes and we headed up river. Um, the year prior when we had scouted it out just to get to Paya took us two days and we had to drag the dugout canoes through portions of the water because it was only ankle deep this year, the year that we showed up and, and the jungle was extremely, I mean, it was like, it was like walking on concrete. The mud was dry and hard packed. The year that we showed up in 2017, it rained every single day. And so we thought we were getting there in the dry season. Uh, it rained every single day we were there. And uh, it took us about six hours to get to Paya because the rivers were so high. Uh, so the crew was the, the four riders and then Jake Hamby, uh, who was filming and then Alex Mann, who was, um, taking still photographs. And, um, I think when we were in Yavisa, we didn't really pay any attention to it. It wasn't until we got to Paya. Actually, it wasn't. And when we started up river, we were all pretty excited. Uh, you know, we're like, ah, we're finally here. You know, we're back in the Darien. It's such a cool place. I mean, for me, seeing motorcycles loaded on paraguas or on dugout canoes, you know, are, is so cool. It's like, ah, this is, you know, this is going to be a great time. It's like the cover of <laughs> Helge Peterson's book, isn't it? <laughs> you know, oh, yeah. Like 10 years yeah. On Helge two Peterson. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what, what was the name of it? Two, I think it's 10 years on two wheels or something like that. Yeah. 10 years on two wheels. I mean, he's like, that's the iconic, like adventure travel stuff. Right. So, and I, and I told, uh, Jake at one point in time, I was like, man, like, I'll just be happy if we get those motorcycles on, on dugout canoe, I get to see a motorcycle on a dugout canoe heading up river. I'll be happy. Um, that was probably the last time I was happy. We're going to take a quick break. I've got two things I want to tell you about, but stay with us because after this, we're heading into the jungle. The other day I was working on my bike and I had to head into town. It was a beautiful day. So the bike was the choice, of course. I had this list of things that I had to get while I was in town. And it wasn't until I got down the road that it suddenly struck me I'd forgot to put something back on the bike that I'd taken off while I was doing the work. Then I made a detour on this road and then I made another detour and, well, more of them. And this is me getting sidetracked. It happens a lot. It's a real problem I have. But I ended up out for much longer than I planned but as I rode, I found myself getting a little frustrated with this one tiny little thing I forgot to put back on my bike. I didn't think it was a big deal. But then I realized just how much I enjoyed using it. It was my Atlas throttle lock. This tiny piece of beautifully crafted mechanism that sits so unobtrusively on my handlebar had become such a regularly used item that I actually forgot how much I'm using it until it wasn't there. I can't tell you how many times I reached out with my thumb expecting that firm positive feedback of the engage button when I, I wanted a break for my wrist. But the other thing that I noticed it became very apparent that day was how much I use it to give my hand a rest so that I'm not gripping the throttle all the time, that, that squeeze action that you have. 
So when I, when I engage the Atlas throttle lock, I can sort of relax my hand, even if I'm keeping it in that same position, even if I'm not like from the outside, you wouldn't know any difference. It makes a big difference. I must've made 20 mental notes to make sure that when I get home, I get my Atlas throttle lock back on. This little device will change the way you ride. Have a look at it. AtlasThrottleLock.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. AtlasThrottleLock.com. When it comes to being connected to your bike, your foot pegs are paramount. Obviously, how could you ride without foot pegs? So if they're so important, why do motorcycles come from the factory with such wimpy pegs? Well, it comes down to economics. And to be fair, the average motorcycle that's sold, very few are lucky enough to get a serious rider as its owner, but you are a serious rider and you need serious foot pegs. IMS Products makes a full line of adventure motorcycle foot pegs ranging from the extra wide and large ADV1s and ADV2s on down to the core Enduros. Now, these pegs are all made from cast certified 17.4 stainless steel. They're all built in the USA and they're all warranted for life. And that warranty ought to give you a hint to the quality. They aren't just another foot peg. They're top of the line pegs, yet affordable for the average rider. The website is imsproducts.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. imsproducts.com. So, you know, we load, we load the bikes. It's not until, uh, we get up, um, and I, I, I won't remember the names of the villages, but there's a couple villages along the way. And when we leave the last village and we start up towards Paya, that river is, uh, is quite a bit smaller. And that was the point the year prior where we were actually out walking up river, dragging the canoes. It wasn't until we got to that point that. I'm starting to think, well, something's wrong because I grew up in Alaska. I know seasonally, you know, at the beginning of the year, the rivers are high because there's a lot of water flowing. There's a lot of, you know, spring rains, all the glaciers are melting, like high rivers are a danger. Right. Mm -hmm. So at about that point, I'm starting to think, well, this is a problem. Uh, cause, cause now this part is much easier. Right. But I kind of have an inclination that it's not going to be the case once we actually get into the jungle so or up into the mountains. Do you tell anyone that? Is this something you expressed openly? Well, we talked about we talked about the high, high water. You know, we were kind of joking. It's like, oh, it's much easier than last year. Um, but I think the gravity of it saying when we so we got to the village and we unloaded the motorcycles. Cause it's not like there's a dock where you unload everything. It's just sort of a muddy bank and you drag these bikes up, uh, up into the village. And we stayed in the village that night and it rained and it's like, okay, the next morning when we got up, you know, you're walking through three inches of mud. You're like, Oh, this is going to be a problem. Uh, but at that point we felt sort of committed. And I don't think we ever had the idea that like, we're going to turn around and, and not do this, but you know, so now you're in Yavisa and there's some small streams between you and the Colombian border, but there's no navigable water. It's all, you know, pretty much mud puddles and, and small streams. Uh, and it would rain and the mud would get saturated and then it just nothing ever really dried out. So everything was, you know, two or three inches of 
of mud. And then in some spots it would be, you know, eight inches of mud, but the mud is very sticky. It's like if you took water and sprinkled it on flour, you know, how it sort of sticks to everything mm, like clay. Um, yeah. And so, uh, Rich Doring, who was our oldest rider and who had the least amount of experience off-road, he was having difficulty, um, you know, so the, I don't know how to describe the trails. So if you, if you think about it, you know, the jungle, it's, ex- the, the vegetation is extremely dense. The trails are about eight inches wide. It's a footpath. It's about eight inches wide. The jungle grows right up to the edge of it. It's been cut back multiple times because the Kuna, they do walk back and forth up and down this trail, but you know, they're not carrying much, you know, it's a narrow trail. So they cut back to some extent. So you have some vines hanging down, you know, that are sort of shoulder height. Well, when you're on a motorcycle, those vines are at your knees or at their hands or right at your handlebar. So you're trying to navigate a two foot wide motorcycle on an eight inch trail. And at the start of it, what we were doing was we were hiring the Kuna to basically cut the trail in front of us and widen it out so we could ride. And then the other challenge with the trail is it's not like a well-groomed trail. It is, um, you know, it's got a lot of ruts in it or a lot of roots that are crossing the trail. Um, So what you'd end up doing is you would ride and then you hit a log and you'd stop and fall over or you'd ride and and your front wheel would bog down in the mud and then you'd have to climb and and get it out. And, and then, and then the second challenge that, that we started getting into is that mud was sticking to the tires. And, um, I don't know if you look at a KLR 650, but the distance between the knobby tire and the swing arm is only a couple inches. Well, that very quickly became packed with mud and sticks and leaves and things like that. So, um, yeah, we just had difficulty maintaining any kind of momentum, uh, in that condition. So riding, you know, we got the riding portions got shorter and shorter and shorter and the falling down and getting stuck became much more frequent. We hadn't even gotten a mile into the jungle and Rich Doring's clutch went out on his bike. So at this point you're in the jungle, you've got a clutch gone on the bike. Let's just talk for a minute about the bike preparation. I know you had sidecars on it for the Alaska portion. As far as bike prep and and your, your kit, what did you do for this? Yeah, that's, that's an excellent, uh, that's an excellent question. So the sidecars, and I think that we hadn't anticipated the weight of the sidecars. We had them for roughly, uh, I want to say 5,000 miles. Maybe we had the sidecars and in the snow and on the ice, I, I would suspect that the sidecars put a considerable amount of wear on the, on the clutches. Um, just because, you know, the sidecars were three or 400 pounds kind of hanging off the side of the bike. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we ended up, you know, you're spinning out a lot and you're stuck in the snow and you're just, I, I think we put a quite a bit of premature wear on them because by the time we got to Panama, I think, well, most of the, most of the speedometers on the bikes were broke for whatever reason, but I think we had about maybe 6,000 miles on the bike total. You know, it was, it was pretty much a brand new bike when we started out. And then that combined with the, with the mud that we encountered, um, Rich's 
yeah, Rich's clutches. We we actually took the bike apart in the jungle and they were just smoked. Mm-hmm. So what else did you do to the bike? Like, how are you prepped as far as repairing it and, and, and the bike itself? Well, yeah. So <laughs> one of the, one of the challenges that when you're going to do any trip, but certainly when you're going through the daring gap is you have to sit down and figure out like, what, what are you going to carry with you? What spare tools are you going to carry? And what spare parts are you going to carry? Um, we had taken spare brake cables, clutch cables. We had taken spare, uh, levers for the blood, the clutches and cables, you know, in case we broke a, a, a lever off. Uh, we had, you know, spare inner tubes. We had the ability to change tires. Uh, we had a spare chain. We had a spare sprocket, front and back sprocket. Um, and we had uh, essentially, well, with the cables and the levers, we carried two sets because that was, um, you know, we figured, well, the chances that we're going to break a lever off is probably pretty good. So we need more than one set of spares. So we'll carry two. We took, uh, I think we only took one sprocket and one chain, um, a lot of cables cause they were easily, we, we wired the cables in to the bike so that, you know, with zip ties. So all we had to do was, you know, connect them. We didn't have to rerun them in the jungle. Mm-hmm. Um, we had tools with us, you know, we had one of the things we had carried spare oil and we'd carried spare fuel just in case we dropped one of the bikes in the water. We were really concerned about, well, if one of these bikes, if one of these boats tips over and the bikes go in, like we're going to need to flush them out, you know, change the oil, um, change the fluids out and get, get the bike running again. Uh, and all the bikes are identical. So the, the great thing about yeah. parts or repairing everything, you're all on the same bike. Yeah, exactly. Um, all the same, all the same bikes, all the same mileage. Um, yeah. And so what we did not anticipate was clutches. I mean, that was just something that, uh, well, and you know, so if we had anticipate, if we had taken spare clutches, we probably would have only taken maybe one or two packs at the most. Uh, and we ended up having three bikes that had clutch failures. Um, the, the fourth bike, you know, go, so going back to Ed Culberson's book, uh, if you, if you look at Ed Culberson's book and the route that he took, we had actually thought that we were going to recreate Ed Culberson's route. Once you get through the Atrato swamp, we had wanted to follow the route that he took up. I, th- I believe it's the Rio Cauca. And then there's a village up there and it's about a 15 mile ride up to the highway. And then you come back South to turbo. We had wanted to do that route. But so, so by the time we had, you know, three bikes that were without clutches, we realized that like, okay, we need to keep at least one bike that's capable of riding out of turbo. Uh, so the plan going forward was, okay, we're just gonna, nobody's going to ride Mike's bike. It's still got a functioning clutch. We're that thing is not even going to get turned on. That thing is going to get pushed and dragged all the way. Pushed and uh, dragged all the way. Like, yeah. like yeah. this is incredible. Like, cause you're, you're into some serious mud here. And, and the thing is with the clutch, let me, let me just ask about that because you, you have so many sponsors involved with this. You had so many people that you consulted for the trip. Did no one ever mention the, the idea of clutches with, with mud and motorcycles? It just kind of seems like the, the clutch would be such an obvious thing. 
Yeah, well, that was most definitely an oversight. Um, you know, we didn't really have... Uh, so Kawasaki was involved in get, getting us the bikes, but they didn't... They didn't... How to put this kindly. They didn't have much involvement after that. <laughs> like, it was... It wasn't like we were talking with their tech team or anything. They were just like, hey, we've got some... Um, we've got some motorcycles through a media program that we can give you. And we're like, well, great, because we had previously planned on just doing it on whatever motorcycles we had. And I had XR 650 at the time. Simon had a, I can't remember if he was riding a beta or a KTM that he, but he was planning on taking the bike that he raced in Baja. That was all different bikes. Yeah. It was going to be all different bikes. And, and I ran into the Kawasaki, um, one of the sponsors at a, at a motorcycle show. And I just happened to like, tell them the story and they looked at me funny and they were like, well, uh, you know, do you have some photos, you know? (laughs) So it's a long story about how Kawasaki got on board, but, but it wasn't like, you know, uh, we, we definitely didn't have, you know, like Kawasaki's financial backing or access to their maintenance people or anything like that. We just sort of had these bikes and, um, uh, like our main sponsor was Gerber, right? They're a knife manufacturer and they were really interested in the social media story. They weren't necessarily that interested in the movie. They weren't necessarily, you know, helpful with motorcycle parts and stuff like that, but they wanted to help tell the story. Uh, so obviously we used a lot of machetes in the jungle, but, um, but yeah, so I guess in retrospect, you'd look back and say, oh, it's pretty obvious to take clutch plates. But at the time, you know, we had put 5,000, well, we had two things that were kind of going against us. One is, you know, we had only put five or 6,000 miles on these clutch plates. So in my mind, you know, I had put thousands of miles on my BMW. I think I probably put 15,000 miles on my BMW and had never dealt with clutch plates. Yeah, sure. Um, and then, the expectation had been that what we were going to be riding on was pretty much concrete covered in leaves. You know, we were expecting the jungle to be very firm. You know, we had talked to a lot of people who had done these trips and mud had not been a factor, but when we got there and it was raining constantly, that's when we knew mud was going to be a huge problem. Um, so I think it was a combination of those two. I mean, the, the reality of it is you, you don't really ride a motorcycle through the Darien Gap. Um, Patty Upton was the most successful at doing that, and she did it on a two-wheel drive Rokon. She actually rode it uh, the entire way, but it's just not an environment where, you know, a motorcycle is a practical. Well, they had problems too. They, they had an engine go, I yeah. think, from what it was, what I remember. Yeah, you, yeah. And I mean, I think Helge Peterson, I think he ended up pretty much dragging his bike. Um, I know that that was how Ed Culberson got through the jungle because the first year that he went down there, he didn't have a pulley system. Um, and the second year he, he took a a pulley system and that's the other problem is, um, you know, you just hit these, these hills that are extremely short and extremely steep. So you're pulling a, a motorcycle up a 60 degree grade, you know, (laughs) like straight up through from one tree to the other and then tying it off. And then setting up your pulley and dragging it up to the next one. So yeah, it's, it's, it's not an, it's not an environment that's conducive to, to motorcycle riding. I I had a group uh, approach me and they said that they wanted to do the same thing and they wanted to take side by sides through there. And uh, I told them, good luck. 
And they said, are you interested in coming? And uh, nope, you can stop talking right there. I have no interest in going back. <laughs> well, you it's a brutal say, place. You'll never go back there again. So at what point, because you, you're there, you really got with your story to the one bike, the clutch is blown on the bike. At what point do you feel like you're in over your head? Like where do things start to fall apart? Well, um, so I think that, I think Rich turned back uh, so after the first mile, we, we took Rich's bike apart. We looked at the clutch plates. We realized that, you know, there's no real way to, to sort of Mickey mouse it and get it back on the road. Um, and, and Rich was, you know, like I said, he was the least experienced rider. So he made the decision that he was going to turn back to Panama city and, and, and he was done. So uh, we, we chatted about it, kind of had a little powwow. And then the next morning he left and we continued on. Um, I think we were probably another two miles into the jungle when my clutch and Simon's clutch went out. And I think the reason for that was, well, there was, there's another dynamic that was going on. Isaac, our guide was very concerned about how much time we spent in the jungle as he should be, you know, Nobody was excited about staying in the jungle for any longer than we had to. We would see camps. We would see um, piles of clothing, cans of food that had been opened up and, you know, debris piles from camps. And these are all illegal immigrants who are, are being human trafficked through the jungle. So they would move them through the jungle and then they would set up camp and they'd sleep at the night and then they'd start moving them again in the morning. So we were seeing you know, the evidence of, of the human trafficking in the area. So we were all pretty eager to, to just kind of do it as quickly as possible. Yeah. What, what other kind of things are there to worry about in the jungle? Oh, <laughs> well, I mean, just aside from the man-made, um, from the man-made challenges, um, you know, you've got scorpions, you've got, uh, really venomous snakes, really venomous spiders. Um, there's a tree called the black palm, which you can't really tell what it is until you're really close to it. But it has these tiny black spikes that are almost like carbon fiber. And when they get into your skin, they sting. And, and it's like having the worst uh, splinter that you've ever had in your life. Mm. Those trees are everywhere. Um, ants, just incredibly vicious ants. Uh, what else? You know, I mean, there's. I, we never saw any, we never saw any evidence of, you know, um, panthers or anything like that. But, and then there's howling, howler monkeys screaming at you at night. But, uh, and then, you know, and then on top of that, you're in a jungle, which is highly humid. Uh, everything's wet. It's raining it a couple times a day. <laughs> there's thunder and lightning. And then you're in an, a very constricted environment where it's like 98 degrees and a hundred percent humidity. And the other aspect which i didn't think about until afterwards but we had been on motorcycles riding for two months up to that point two and a half months we were not in the best physical condition um so yeah there's you know there's dehydration and all that setting in but um so so rich turned around and left and then the next day you know we had two more clutches go out so i think at that point we had been pushing really hard using the bikes. Uh, so we had the bikes, even though we had them 
um, rigged up to use the pulley system, we were still using the motor of the bike uh, to give us a little bit of leverage. So we were sort of pushing the bike and, and sort of like walking beside it at the same time. Uh, and as I mentioned, the mud and the debris was building up in the back tires. So every couple hundred yards or a couple hundred meters, we'd have to stop, take a stick and clean out the, 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 the tire wells of the motorcycle. And then you could go along a little bit further. Um, but I think when the clutches went out on the other two bikes, there was a little bit of moment of despair. Um, you know, I sat down with Isaac, the guide, you know, he was like, patted me on the shoulder and was like, don't worry about it. We'd, we just move forward, you know, we're forward. Let's just keep going. I'll get more people. <laughs> and so he, you know, we weren't very far from the village and, you know, the local, lo the local Kuna for one, they're, they're in much better shape than we were. They, they, they know the way and, and, um, they, they were back to the village and had more help within, you know, a couple of hours. And so, uh, that lifted our spirits a little bit. And then, you know, we just kept going. Um, and I think things turned around when we hit the Colombian Panama border. Uh, I think that's when we sort of realized like, okay, it's sort of all downhill from here into Colombia. <laughs> and, uh, and I mean, we knew, we, you know, it's, it's kind of a bummer when you have a broken motorcycle, when you're a motorcycle rider and your, and your bike doesn't work. Yeah. But, um, but what we did was when we lost the other three or the other two clutches, I had a, a spot device and, and as kind of a side story. So I got out my spot device and I typed a message to my wife. I said, uh, uh, we're all okay. And, and I can't remember the exact phrasing, but I said, we're all okay. All bikes are broke, uh, need clutches. And then I sent another message that said, um, uh, rich is heading back to Panama city need clutch plates and rich has his own adventure story of traveling all the way back to Panama city by himself. He, um, went to a cafe and checked his email and he got an email from my wife and she said, Hey, all of the other clutches went out on the motorcycles. They need clutch plates. And rich knew exactly what we needed at that point. So uh, between Rich, my wife, and the Rocky Mountain Kawasaki in, in Longmont, Colorado, they FedExed clutch plates down to Panama. Rich picked them up, got on a plane, flew to Columbia, rented a car, and drove down to Turbo. So by the time we got out of the jungle, he was he had a haircut, a shave, and was waiting for us in, uh, in Turbo. When you got through the jungle, what, were you satisfied? Oh man, you got some good questions on here. Um, was I satisfied? I, I don't, I don't think that I was. Um, so we, at the, at the Colombian border, we, we pretty much pushed and drug. Uh, and I say we, the, you know, the Kuna were, were doing most of the work, but when we got into Colombia, we were met by the, um, villagers in, on from Cristales on the Colombian side, the Wunan, and they were, you know, super excited. You know, it's, we were probably the craziest thing that's come through their village in years. So they were pretty excited. Um, we actually got the bikes on dugout canoes and brought them down to Cristales. So there's actually a section of river 
that's navigable before you get to the um, the Atrato Swamp, the sort of the proper Atrato Swamp. Um, the Atrato Swamp itself, the water is only three or four inches deep. Um, but that, so that's kind of a whole separate challenge there. But uh, so we got down to Cristales and we spent the night there in that village. And it was a pretty, t- it was a pretty tense experience because we got into Cristales. We still had Isaac with us. You know, he, he would not have ever left us. Uh, he's a great guy. So he stayed with us, but he said, the village leader has to get permission to let you stay here. And I, I was kind of like, well, what do you mean? Who's he got to get permission from? And he said, well, he's got to ask the, the FARC if you can stay here tonight. And that was a little shocking to us because we thought, you know, these conversations had already taken place. Uh-huh. We're like, um, okay. So we sat in this, in this hut sort of waiting for them to come back with an answer. And, um, they came back and they said, yeah, they'll, they'll let you stay the night here, but they don't want you flying your drone and they want you out by eight o'clock in the morning. We said, Hey, no problem. So we were loaded and ready to go at 6am the next morning. We were, when we got out of that, uh, village, but that's quite an alarm clock. Yeah. Yeah, it was. And the FARC waiting for you to go, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and actually, so as we left, uh, Cristales, we actually passed their camp and their bunkers. They kind of have a bunker set up on the river. Uh, so yeah, it was a little alarming. Um, but then, then we really quickly hit the Atrato swamp, which is, is where the rivers sort of fan out. It's the main reason why they've never built a road is because the Atrato swamp is just, is a, is a, is a beast of a, of a obstacle. Um, so that's when we were, we had to unload the bikes and kind of drag them through the water and drag the canoes and then load them back in. we had to cut channels in the, in the river, you know, kind of muck out the river to sort of get the canoes through. Um, but then that passed really quickly. And then we were out on the Atrato river and sort of into an area that's sort of controlled by the Colombian military. And that's when you really have a chance to sort of look back at the jungle. And, and for me, it was reflective. I, I was like, wow, I can't believe we just went through that. Like, that's pretty crazy. Um, and I think everybody collectively was like, that was pretty stupid. <laughs> like, that wasn't really worth it. And do they blame you for that? Because you, you're the guy that really started all this. No, I don't think there was any blame. I mean, we all knew what we signed on for. It, it you know, if you've ever... Um, you know, if you've ever been out on a on the on the ocean when it's really rough, or you've ever been out on a ski trip, you know, when this when the when the wind when a storm kicks up, or you've ever been caught in a situation that, you know, I don't know if I would say it was a near death experience, but it was physically and mentally challenging. It takes you a couple of days to sort of mentally recover from that, and I think we were all sort of tired and hungry and kind of shell shocked a little bit. And then afterwards, you know, the euphoria sort of kicked in and we were like, oh, yeah, well, you know, we survived it. That was fun. It's it's good for a chuckle. Um, I just would never do it again. You know what I mean? I would never tell somebody not to do it if they have it on sort of their their bucket list or they're obsessed with it. Um, I would never tell somebody not to do it, but I would certainly never do it again because it just eh, just wasn't worth it. 
you know, <laughs> when, when you look back though, is, is it an accomplishment? Right. Is, is it something that you would sort of put in the books of motorcycle riding accomplishments, like with Helge and with the other people who maybe the Uptons who've ridden a different kind of bike, of course, much easier to ride, but would you put it in the book with those? Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that's maybe, I think that's maybe for, up uh, for others to decide, but I will say this. I, uh, Helge Peterson, Antonio Braga, and, uh, Ed Culberson, I will give them a trip. I have a tremendous amount of respect for them because one, they went through by themselves, which if you're in, and, and, and I don't think people can truly understand this until they're there and they're in this jungle. I mean, this jungle is dark and dense. And unless you grow up there, every single thing is strange to you. And it's, it's just such a strange environment. Um, so that I, I have a tremendous amount of respect for Helge and Antonio and, uh, and Ed, because they went through by themselves. Um, I certainly would not have wanted to do that because, uh, you know, I, one of the things that I did enjoy was, you know, we were joking around, you know, we were sitting in our tents or in our, on our hammocks at night, you know, shooting the breeze and joking around like we were on a regular camping trip. Hmm. Certainly it was miserable during the day, but we were sort of like drinking water and sort of reflecting on it. Um, and I enjoyed that, but, uh, it would have probably have been extremely lonely doing it by themselves. So I give them a tremendous amount of, of credit for that. Um, and they did it back in the day when the Darien Gap, there was a lot less information than I had about the Darien Gap. Um, you know, nowadays we have, uh, there's not been a tremendous amount of photo and video from, from the Darien, but uh, I certainly had more information at my fingertips than any of them had. So I don't know if our trip compares, but I, I certainly give a lot of respect to those three um, and, and to the Uptons as well. I mean, the Uptons did, they have, so, Patty Upton has, and I actually talked to her on the phone several times and got uh, quite a bit of information. We had her on the show. Yeah. Yeah. Patty is an amazing woman. Uh, tons of information about the Darien Gap and tons of information about Panama in general. Her and Lauren Upton are, are you know, legends in the overlanding Um she's a wonderful person, wonderful information. And, um, yeah, so we, you know, I had all that information at my fingertips when I was planning this and those four individuals, those five individuals, and uh, Lauren, you know, they didn't, they didn't have any of that information. You know, they didn't have the internet. They couldn't look at Google maps and, and, you know, try to judge distances and, and things like that. So yeah, my, my hat goes off to the, I, you know, they're sort of the pioneers of it. Wayne, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. And, um, you know, we, we love this show. My son is a, is an avid fan of your show. So I appreciate you guys inviting us on. Oh, fantastic. Thank you. was Wayne Mitchell from his home in Colorado. Now, that film is just in the process of being released for this adventure. It's called Where the Road Ends. It covers the entire trip right from Alaska on to down to Argentina. Now, right now it's available through Revzilla if you're an RPM member. Now, we have the link 
for their Facebook page. And we've got some photos from the expedition on our website in the show notes for this episode. You can drop by there and then you follow that Facebook link and then maybe see when it's going to be announced, how the film will be released to the, to the more general public. I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, Motobreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it if anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer Elizabeth Martin and you, the listener, thank you very much for being a part of this. This show is built on a model of some advertising and listener support. We need your support. Drop our website, adventureriderradio.com click on support. Anything $10 or more gets you an Adventure Rider Radio sticker for your companion, your toolbox. They're great stickers actually, very high quality stickers and uh, it's kind of cool, I think. Anyway, maybe I'm biased. I I guess I am biased, obviously. (laughs) But in any case, Anything uh, $50 or more gets you a shout out on our Raw show. Remember, our Raw show comes out once a month. That's our roundtable discussions that we do. All of these shows that we do are available anywhere that you can find podcasts. So you can choose your place. And by the way, if you haven't already done it, we'd love to get a five-star review from you. Go to iTunes or wherever it is you're getting your podcast and put a review up there because that helps other people find the show. Thank you very much. If you if you can do that or if you've already done that, thank you for doing that. Anyway, time to get out there and ride your bike if you can. My name is Jim Martin and I will talk to you next week. Hi, this is Ali Pebbidi from the UK and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Ah!